Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we're hearing from Doug Hurst, chairman of Northern Vertex Mining Corp. Doug is a lifelong miner. He started as an exploration geologist, worked as a mining analyst, and then as a mining entrepreneur and executive. There's no doubt that he truly enjoys the work he does and the career he's led. He's reluctant to say it, but he's created incredible value by developing and selling assets that were otherwise just out of the limelight. As an example, he and a partner co-founded International Royalty Corp, which they later sold for over $700 million. This was followed by a leadership position in Newmarket Gold, where an acquisition of gold assets was later sold to Kirkland Lake for over a billion. Now, as the chairman of Northern Vertex, we talk about his experience and how it applies to the team and project he's with now. We also talk about how they're following a similar playbook with past successes. His experience from over 30 years in the industry is remarkable. He's been through wild commodity bull markets and devastating market crashes, but he's stuck with the industry and was generous to share his experience with us. And before we get started, we have some minor housekeeping to look after. First is that I'm a minor shareholder in Eclipse Gold, which merged with Northern Vertex. And second, I wanna say thank you to our sponsor, Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been doing this with the Canadian capital markets for over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, on with the show. Doug, welcome to the show. Oh, Corey, thanks so much for having me. It's going to be an interesting discussion. Yeah, Doug, I'm really looking forward to it. As I've gotten to know you a bit in some of the work we've done together, I'm really interested in tapping into the years of experience. So what do you say for the listeners? Let's kick off with a bit of an intro about yourself. Can you give us some background in your career? Sure, sure. You know, so I got a degree in geology at BSC at McMaster in Ontario. And I worked a couple of years as an exploration geologist, a contract geologist, and that was in the that was in the early 80s. And the industry was in a huge state of flux at that point, where they really didn't have staff geologists anymore, and they were bringing on even just young, inexperienced geos as contractors. And so I bounced uh, from contract to contract, and then thought, you know what, this is kind of a tough life. I I've hardly figured out my own life, and now I have to run a small business. And so my girlfriend and I, at the time, now my wife, moved out to Vancouver. And one of the places that I had worked as a student geologist was with a guy named Don McKinnon. And Don McKinnon was one of the prospectors that staked the claims where Hemlo was discovered. Okay. So now 25 million ounces and counting. 
was an extraordinary. And so the very first summer that I worked as a geo, as a kid in the bush, was near Marathon uh, up in Northern Ontario. And there were 25 drill rigs in the bush on both sides of the Trans-Canada Highway. So it was an extraordinary introduction to discovery, the staking rush, all the craziness that happened around it. It was very interesting. It's fascinating stuff. You know, and we did a whole bunch of work on just small groups of claims that Vancouver juniors had acquired just because they wanted to be close to the action of Hemlock. And so that was my first introduction to sort of the, the financial side. We would religiously look at the Northern Miner for stock prices and, you know, sit around discussing stocks at the dinner table. And it was fascinating stuff, really fascinating stuff. So when Sophia and I moved out to Vancouver, we landed there and I just started talking to brokerage firms about, you know, could I be a broker? Would it make sense for me to be a mining analyst? And I landed a wonderful job with a group called McDermott St. Lawrence, which is a small local shop. And uh, they did have an office in Toronto, but it was a small shop. And I was at, you know, green behind the, you know, I had to buy a suit (laughs) (laughs) and, you know, gain my, you know, move from the bush to the desk, uh, gain my 10 pounds, my requisite 10 pounds to sit behind the desk. But I was there for about, uh, I was at McDermott for about six months and then the crash of October happened. Okay. So that was the crash of 87. And a whole bunch of people that had been at work the week before weren't at work the next week. And it was a really fascinating event to have happened six months into my career. So I worked with McDermott for about six and a half years, and it was wonderful. Wonderful people. It was a great place to work. And, and the market was a pretty wild and woolly place. That was Bruce McDonald and Murray Pezum and you know, it was a wild and There's wacky some, play. some legends, some infamous oh, legends yeah. and some, you know, just, yeah, it was absolutely wild. Feel free to get into any of those stories if you like. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I mean, when I was there, you know, Eskate Creek was discovered and Murray was in full flight promotion around Eskate Creek. And it was, it was just wonderful to be in the street at that time, getting to know all of these wild and wacky characters. And, Fascinating stuff. Absolutely fascinating. So I worked with McDermott for about six and a half years, and then I switched shops. I jumped to Sprott Securities, and I worked there for about 18 months, and then I jumped out on my own. You know, so the seven or eight years that I worked as a mining analyst was a very tough job, very tough job. Covering companies was an all-consuming process, and it was very difficult to sort of balance figuring out new ideas and writing research. And, you know, it was a very difficult balance, very, very difficult balance and something that's very difficult to sustain. I mean, you know, there's several mining analysts that I've known have been on the street for 20 years and, well, I don't know how they do it. I mean, it's, mm. a, it's an extraordinarily hard job, but, you know, having been on that side of the street, I learned what mining analysts were all about. And I learned how pitches, you know, good pitches impacted me. Yeah. You know, so I met with, you know, two or three companies a day for seven years. And you began to understand what a good mining company was and what a, you know, a lesser company was. And so you really got to, you know, I got a full education on the geology and I visited a lot of things that I, you know, a lot of types of geology all over the world that I really wouldn't have had exposure to as an exploration geologist. But then- Well, I just want to say, don't let me forget, let's get into later in our conversation about your experience of hearing a good pitch from a bad pitch. 
Yeah. Because it's so pivotal in, in managing the market and embracing or engaging investors. So looking forward to hearing that, but please carry on. Well, you know, I mean, one of the things that I found was that when management was clear with me, it made my job so much easier, you know, and I welcomed good guidance from management because it made my job easier and my job was tough enough already. And I wasn't going to go into a dark corner and dig through mounds of paper trying to figure the story out. And if they could lay it out for me, and if they could give me some assistance in pulling the numbers together and the geological story, then it just made my job so much easier. So that when I eventually got to the corporate side, you know, I used all those tools that I gained as an analyst, well, to help analysts do their job. Yeah, I can can see that, right? I mean, it's, I definitely want to hear about the as as I mentioned in an earlier conversation, the mental models and the approach and how you went about analyzing and then also communicating to these other companies. But before we go there, you then went on and have built a number of companies in the mining space to, you know, outstanding success. So what were those? What was that part of your career like? Yeah, yeah. Well, so after I left brokerage firms, I, I consulted to a few pension funds and money managers and brokerage firms. I did eyes and ears work for a couple of senior companies, just kind of picking up interesting prospects and and sort of sending them a cheat sheet of what was interesting in the markets. And then I did a whole bunch of work for Major Drilling, which was a fascinating, fascinating company. They were so interesting. They were putting out drill contracts and they were taking stock back for their profit margin, Okay, which really interesting. JT Thomas was a driller up in Smithers and he made a lot of money doing work for some of the companies that were drilling in British Columbia at the time. And he would play with his profit margin and his profit margin would come in shares. So major drilling, when the markets were terrible, terrible in the early 2000s, 2000 to 2003. So major drilling was taking stock for part of their profit margin for companies that couldn't quite afford to drill. And they did incredibly well. So that was really fun. That was a, that was a really, really fun experience. If you can believe it, in 2002, the entire year in 2002, I collated all the financing data for a couple of years there, just on the premise that if somebody was raising money, they might be doing a drill contract. And so I kept that for major drilling. And then I just realized how useful a tool it was in finding stuff that no one else had ever thought of, right? Okay. So in 2002, by my calculations, the entire mining market, which included everything from Naranda and Falconbridge down to Moose Pasture Company, <laughs> raised $325 million in total. Wow. Yeah. So it was absolutely breathtaking. And, and so you, the company you compare had, that to last summer, you know what I mean? Like, right. Yeah. What a different That's story. two weeks. Yeah, two exactly. Weeks. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Ah. So, you know, the crush in the mining industry was horrific at that point. Absolutely. Amazing. You know, what's interesting is I really enjoy speaking with people like yourselves who've stuck in the industry. You know, you get a lot of people who will jump sector to sector because it's hot and, you know, throw a deal into a shell and and consider themselves a cannabis expert. And then tomorrow they're a blockchain expert. No, you know, now (laughs) they're back to silver. Like, yeah. But you've dedicated your entire career to the resource space. Yeah. And and seeing those ups and downs. And you know, I want to touch on 1986, you had the market crash. I mean, it, it probably pales in comparison to what happened in March here. And it's almost, 
Like how, how was that different than what you're seeing today? Yeah, yeah. It was frightening. It was really frightening. So at that point, the street in 1987 raised a billion dollars for the mining. You know, so Vancouver raised a billion dollars for mining companies. And there were almost no mining analysts in Vancouver. There were a few. And, you know, brokerage firms are sort of feeling out the idea that, wow, we better have some in-house expertise, right? And so I remember that I was in the process of starting to write research on some of the things. You know, I was I was sort of learning by talking to all the brokers and trying to figure the business out in it. And I was just ready to put out some research on a few companies that I thought were kind of interesting, right? And the morning, the morning of that crash, so I mean, the market fell 23% in one day. Hmm. It was like that. It was lightning. And I just remember thinking about all the companies that I was going to write research on, and they all went, no bid, absolutely no bid. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the volumes and the amount of money in the market at that point was a fraction of what it is now. Uh, of course. And, yeah. Yeah. There was no computerized trading. There was a little bit, but not much. And, you know, I just remember there were a couple of companies that I was thinking of recommending. And one of them was a company called Fairfield Minerals, and they had some projects in the Yukon. And it was run by, you know, a couple of really good guys. And, and their share price was about $3. And I just remember going no bid. And a few shares traded at 50 cents or a dollar. I mean, it was that dramatic, right? So that was a real eye-opener. You know, and since then, you know, I've experienced several crashes and always had a sense of, okay, things are getting a bit crazy here. It's time to back off. And, you know, so I've been able to skate through a lot of those kind of events simply because I could feel like the market was just getting overheated. It was getting a bit silly. And, you know, so it was a really good example. When I was consulting after I left the brokerage firms, I remember being on a trip. So this was about 95, 96. And there had been several world-class discoveries in a row. And everybody was just waiting for the next world-class discovery around the corner. You know, so we had Voise Bay. We had two big diamond mines. We had Purina. We had, you know, Bajo de Alambrero. All of these just world-class, massive world-class discoveries that had happened. And it was just one after another, after another. And I just remember going, so Briex had started at that oh, yeah. point and it was trading, it was probably trading around $100 or $150 at the time. And I just remember going on a trip with, and there were, you know, 10 analysts and we were touring some projects in South America. And all these guys on the trip were brand new mining analysts. And I, you know, I'd been in the game for 10 years at that point. And they're all jumping up and down about, you know, all these crazy valuations and what stocks should trade at. And if you had a good drill hole and maybe some geophysics, you're trading at $15. I mean, the, you know, the valuations were absolutely amazing, right? Hmm. And after that trip, I uh, cut off all my brokerage contracts because I just said, I don't know when, I don't know where, but it's going to be bad, right? And wow. the market was... So the market roared on for another six or seven months, and then along came Briex, right? Yeah. You know, and that put a knife in the balloon, and things kind of went quiet for several years after that. And so I've been able to skate around a whole bunch of those kinds of events. You know yeah. what I think is also interesting is being able to ride through those. I feel like there's a group of mining professionals like yourself who yeah. who've built some incredibly successful companies despite the market. 
you know, yeah. some, some major multi-million and multi-billion dollar takeouts have happened when gold is so out of favor that it's just nobody's talking about it. Yeah. And you've been there. So yeah. let's go yeah. there. Maybe some of the bigger deals that in your career and then the, the royalty company you built, like, yeah. man, there's so much. I don't, I'm, I'm concerned we won't have enough time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I mean, so I met Doug Silver. We were speaking together at the Spokane show. It's called, it used to be called the Northwest Mining Show. And it was, it was usually in Spokane. So it was a three-hour drive. It was a nice, easy, you know. And so I went down and Doug Silver was speaking at the same show. And we looked at the title of each other's talks and we were on the same panel. And we went, you know what? I think, dude, I think we're going to talk about the same thing. So we sat down. We had coffee a couple hours before and we flipped through each other's presentations. And we got to the point where it's like, wow, we're going to talk about the same thing. So we just... So we sort of made an arrangement right there that said, okay, I'll tear this slide out and you can, you can talk about that and you can tear that slide out and I'll talk about that. And we realized we had a lot in common. We thought a lot alike. And now Doug, uh, Doug Silver was the driving force. There's, there's no doubt about that. Uh, if you know him, he's very dynamic and smart guy. And for context, which company or which project? Yeah, so so this, this was for International Royalty Corporation. Right. And he was running a consulting firm called Balfour Holdings. And my consulting firm, which was a one-man show, was DS Hearst Limited. So we were just consulting to the mining industry on financial matters, really, financial and data matters. And we just realized we were sort of in the same business, but our contact bases were dramatically different. His were mostly in the U.S. with some in Canada, and mine were mostly in Canada with some in the US. You know, and he had a series of people that he wanted to work with and he knew that he should probably get into the public company space at some point. And so we just threw a whole bunch of ideas against the wall and you know, once a month for a year or so, he would call me up and say, "Okay, we got the next great idea." And we would hash it out and throw it around and you know, many of them were interesting and many of them didn't work. And one day he called me up and he said, you know, I just sold a royalty to Royal Gold on behalf of a client. And I dug into the royalty business. And he said, I realized that there were no public royalty companies at that point. Franco and Euro had disappeared into Newmont. Royal Gold was a small public company in the United States. Repadre Capital, you know, so these were some of the other royalty companies had been absorbed and disappeared. And there were no publicly traded royalty companies in Canada. So he called me up and he said, okay, this is the next idea. What do you think? You know, I said, yeah, yeah, of course, you know, I'll be on the board. And I put the phone down and then I thought, no, 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 this is the idea. This is a really mm. interesting one. And I picked up the phone and I said, Doug, this is the idea. I'll drop everything. I can raise the dough. And I know a couple of places where we can find royalties. And Doug said, okay, let's go. So that was in December, I think, of 2003. And we, at the PDAC the next year, so 2003, 2004, something like that, we bumped into an old friend of mine who was a good friend of Don McKinnon's, right? So this is where the whole circle right. of relationships starts to come back. And this guy had, was a financier in, in Toronto, and he had a royalty on Hemlock. And the story behind him was so fascinating. I mean, it was wild and wacky. It was an unbelievable discovery. And a whole bunch of contractors, lawyers, accountants, you know, financial types had unpaid bills. So in lieu of unpaid bills, they got royalties. 
on Hemlo. Mm. So he had a quarter percent royalty on Hemlo, which paid half a million to three quarters of a million dollars a year. And with the dot-com boom, he had put this thing up for collateral and he'd taken the money. It was essentially a margin call. He put the, the royalty up as collateral and he'd taken all the money and thrown it into the market on dot-coms. And the guys that he'd done the deal with were holding the title on the royalty. So he said, if you can buy the title back from the royalty, you can take it for whatever you know you can pay for it. Give me as many shares and options in your new company as you possibly can and let's go. Huh. So we bought a quarter percent royalty in Hemlo at five times cash flow. Wow. You think about a royalty these days and they will trade hands at, you know, a 2% discount. Unbelievable, right? Yeah. So can you get into the details of, of royalties and yeah. how they work in the different kinds? And I love if you can even go deeper because I know that they can be even a financial instrument for issuers or for companies who are, yeah. who are out there producing. You know, how does that work? How should CEOs look at a royalty as an opportunity for them? And what should they shy away from? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've been on both sides of the business. So, but, you know, the interesting thing about the royalty company that, that Doug and I built or started anyways, was that we created almost no royalties. We found royalties that already existed. So there was no streaming. Nobody did any streams at that time. And all we did was we bought existing NSRs. Hmm. And the way we did that is that we just did searches on news databases, you know, with the word NSR royalty. And we found all sorts of hidden royalties that everybody had forgotten about, right? Hmm. And sorry, for context, NSR, the acronym is? Net Smelter Royalty. Yep. Yep. Interesting. So, okay. Yeah. So international royalty only just started to look at creating streaming deals. And then we were taken over by Royal Gold. And that was the end of that. So we never really got into creating streaming deals. And then I went on to other things, more classical mining ventures. And then Doug, when, when we sold to Royal Gold, Doug went on to be one of the partners at Orion Mine Finance. And they, they created a whole bunch of streams. They created royalties as sort of financing packages for companies. So he went on to be a good deal more creative than we ever were at international royalty. Yeah. Interesting. It sounds a bit with international royalty. What you did there was almost just, there was just an untapped or a forgotten about market opportunity. Absolutely. And it almost didn't even need to be creative. It was more just fundamentals. Hey. Oh, no, no. Yeah. There was nothing creative about it. I mean, you know, the, the creative part was that Doug generated, you know, Silver generated the idea, like, we got to do this, right? So at the time, so th this is the really fascinating part. Copper was a dollar. Nickel was $3. Gold was $300. Zinc was 40 cents. Lead was 25 cents, right? Yeah. And we just looked at the charts and thought, okay, these are at 30-year lows. We can do every deal. We can give anybody whatever they want. And metal prices are going to skate us on side. Hmm. So wow. that was that was that was the premise. There was nothing, you know, there was nothing that smart about it. We just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And the fascinating thing is that is that, you know, with a royalty like a Hemlo was cash flowing. So we bought that one privately. And that allowed us to take a year and fly all over the world and do deals and vacuum up as many royalties as we could find. So we came to the market, we had 60 or 70 royalties, and our flagship was the royalty on Boise Bay. 
Hmm. And yeah. so you started out, how much capital did you raise? And then you got eighty-six million. Oh, so so the first private one was about six million. Wow. Yeah. And that was a really tough raise. You know, so it was also 2003. And uh, there wasn't that much money around. And we spent all of our money, you know, I drained my RSP, you know, we dropped all of our contracts, we, you know, started to do this full time. And, you know, our credit cards were rung up and we, <laughs> we did one more trip. I know, I know, it was really amazing. It's the entrepreneurial story, right? Like it's oh really goodness. cool to hear and really yep. cool to see. Yeah. So it was the last meeting of the last day in Vancouver. And we had a meeting with a couple of guys at Haywood, John Tognetti, who I'd known for years. And he said, you know, if you ever find something interesting, come back. And it was the last meeting of the last day. And we were both you know, our credit cards were rung up and we had to go back to consulting if we couldn't raise the money. Yeah. And John had just helped Brian Dalton of Altius Minerals buy a 10% piece of the Voise Bay royalty. So he and his partner knew the royalty space and we came in and pitched them on the royalty space and they just said, how much money do you need? Let's go. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So so fast forward to the future. There's a bunch of questions I want to get into that are coming yeah. from this. But fast forward to the future, you make the sale. Can you give us some details and context around that? And then also, how did it feel? It was really interesting. I mean, you know, so the company existed for five years. So I was there as part of the founding group and I was the president for a year. And, you know, the head office was in Denver and I was in Nelson. And so I stepped down as president and stayed as a director. And Doug really carried on the company from there. And it waffled around. I mean, it did okay, but it wasn't spectacular. You know, rise like Franco had had 20% returns over 20 years. And so we listed just around $3. The first deal was at 80 cents. We listed at $3 and we sold the company at uh, 7 seven forty-five, something like that. You know, so it was a nice run and all of our investors made money and it worked out well, but there were a whole bunch of lessons that we learned from that process. Yeah. Yeah. I bet. I bet. Uh, where to go from here in giving me this background, you, you've mentioned a lot of names, people that you obviously respect. And I'm curious, what are the characteristic traits of those in the market? I mean, you, you hear about some of these names like, you know, Friedland as an example right. and the stories behind him, or, you know, there's some real characters in the mining industry and it's pretty, pretty unique to Western Canada with our markets, yeah. obviously global, but we have the community here. Who comes to mind for you and what are the characteristics of those execs? Well, guys like Ross Beatty, Robert Freeland, you know, a Pierre Lassonde, right? And then a couple of guys that I worked with are very, very smart guys. And that was Doug Forrester and Blaine Johnson. Very smart guys. And through them, I got to meet a guy named Ray Threlkeld. And, you know, all of these people that, that we just talked about have been serially successful. They've done it again and again and again. And it's a very limited handful of people that are successful once. And then there's a much smaller crowd that are successful again and again and again, right? And what is it that separates those? One of the key things is that everybody is a good communicator. Everybody has very clear ideas about where the company is going. But as markets change, they're very quick to pivot. And they're very quick to articulate those ideas to their investors into the market. Yeah. You know, something that rings a bell too from this in, in the sense of communication is also 
that of networking, and I bet this was a big part of your analyst career in the sense of needing to know so many people in the ecosystem that you build your optionality. And in that, there's a value to that of, of understanding who's doing what and where. How does that resonate for you? Oh, yeah, completely. You know, the fascinating thing is that, you know, academically, I was okay. But that's only one form of intelligence. And emotional intelligence is such a, a big predictor of how people will do. You know, so what I've found over the years is that there's an expression, you know, something along the lines of, you know, A students work for C students and B yeah, students yeah. work for the government, right? <laughs> and I heard that the, uh, the A's and B's work for the C's and D's. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. You know, and so I think a way bigger predictor, a better predictor of success in this kind of a, a sphere is emotional intelligence. Certainly overall intelligence really helps, but I think that emotional intelligence is a very big predictor or having a partner who's very emotionally intelligent, mm. right? You know, and recognizing what your shortfalls, you know, so being humble, figuring out where you are in the ecosystem is a great expression. You know, don't be arrogant and think that you know everything because you surely don't. And if you're humble and you identify the people that you think can fill those roles, those are the really, really interesting people that can gather these kinds of skills around them, the skills that they don't have. That brings me to, to my next question, and because I know this is about Northern Vertex and right. the merger between Northern Vertex and Eclipse, which you're now the chairman of the Northern Vertex is the right. surviving name. Yeah. But as I understand that there's a, a group of pros there who have worked together for a long time and and I would say exhibit some of these characteristic traits that you mentioned. Yeah, definitely. So definitely. as such a new deal that, you know, it's it's timely in the market, can you give us some context around there and and some of the thinking and the strategy behind it and, and where you see it going? Well, so several of those people came from Northern Empire. And, you know, so, I mean, Mike Allen is a, was a wonderful CEO, did a great job at Northern Empire, and he's now the president of Vertex, and he's doing the same job all over again. I mean, he's very good. A couple of other people that we took from Northern Empire, you know, Dylan Burr, he's the investor relations coordinator, and he's, he's doing a great job. One guy that we've added to the team is a guy named Warwick Borg. So Mike is the CEO of Northern Empire, was sort of, you know, doing a bit of exploration geology, as well as trying to manage the, you know, his duties as the CEO. And it was a bit too much. And so we looked around and tried to hire Warwick Borg. So Warwick was the chief geo at Pretium, you know, so Bruce Jack Lake, I mean, that's one of the most immensely complicated pieces of geology, you know, very productive and a lot of gold, but oh my, the geological model there is statistically incredibly complicated. Wow. Okay. And, you know, so he figured that one out. I mean, that was a very, very difficult mind to figure out and get up and running. And so Warwick understands the interplay between exploration and mine development drilling and then the mine itself. And so we had talked about hiring him at Northern Empire and then Northern Empire got a bid from Coor and Northern Empire was gone. So when we started Eclipse and pulled that together, that was the first guy that Mike called. That was a really big piece of the puzzle that we were missing. And he's been extraordinary. So that's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've seen him in interview and, and his excitement and passion for geology is it's contagious. Oh, yeah. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, we laugh. He can hardly get in the door. His head is, his brain is so big. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. So with Eclipse, it was an exploration company. And with Northern Vertex, you have a mine in Nevada, which was producing and it's now become a cash flowing and, and as I understand, nearing or if not profitable entity. And you're bringing the two together because as I've heard before, there is a grand strategy behind this to use the best of both to build, who knows, build the next Equinox as an example. Can you give me more color on that? Because I'm keeping it high level here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Working with the guys at at New Market was a really, really good lesson in just that capital markets knowledge guiding the company. And at New Market, we found Crocodile Gold, which was a company that the market had completely forgotten about, completely, right? And we were lucky enough to get there just as they were beginning to find all these amazing grades at Fosterville. So we we couldn't do the deal fast enough, right? Mm. So all we needed to do with Crocodile was to bring those assets into the light. It was something that was completely under the radar. There were no mining analysts following Crocodile, you know, and within six months we had you know, coverage from six or seven guys. We'd had rafts of analysts out to Australia to have a look at the assets that we had there. And the same thing happened at Northern Empire. So when at Northern Empire, we had the Sterling and the Sterling was the asset that everybody had forgotten about. And it was a great location. They had, you know, 250,000 or 300,000 ounces of three gram material, which was open pit, heat bleachable, all ready to go. And the world had forgotten about this asset completely. Hmm. So all we really had to do was to tell the world about it, bring analysts, bring tours. The great thing about Sterling, it was a two-hour drive north of Las Vegas. So every dog and his brother wanted to come and visit. Oh, yeah, that's an easy sell. It's an easy sell, right? So we would hold a tour on a Friday and guys would stay over the weekend, right? So, But what we realized was that if you go a little bigger, You know, if you deal with larger amounts of money, it's easier to create liquidity events. It's easier to raise larger amounts. If you have a bigger idea, it's easier to raise larger amounts of money. And if you have a smaller idea, it takes as much or more effort to raise smaller amounts of money. You know, so, so the axiom go big or go home is exactly right. You know, so when Doug Silver and I were thinking of raising $10 million to put this royalty company into the into the game, along came Voise Bay. And that was a big price tag. And so a couple of brokerage firms looked over the fence and went, eh, you know, five or $10 million raise. We're, we're sort of interested, but we're not. But as soon as we landed the royalty at Voise Bay, $185 million raise, every dog and his brother pounded the door trying to raise the money for us. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? It would have taken the same amount of effort to raise five or 10 or 20 million than it did with, you know, raising 180 million. You hear this time and time again. And and I think that that same story, same analogy is applicable to the Lundin group. Absolutely. Uh, Lucas was telling me this in an interview and yeah, go big or go home. Isn't that the way? Yep. Yep. Ross Beattie's very good at it too. Very good. And both Lucas and Ross raise money when times are terrible. You know, so Newmarket was a good example of that. Lucas was on our board at Newmarket. And, you know, and Doug and Blaine did a road show. We thought, you know, with our board, we should be able to raise, you know, all the money we need. And we we went out and tried to raise 25 million bucks. And 
we had offers for 15 and there was still 10 that had to, you know, and we knew we had to do this. So all the directors, you know, wrote checks. Now Lucas wrote, wrote the biggest one, bless his heart, but the rest of us, you know, stretched and we were able to close that deal. But so that's just the power of being able to do that in a bad market. If you can raise money in a bad market and do a deal in a bad market, a good market will skate you on side. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so with Northern Vertex now, yeah. is this you combination know, put you a step closer to the big leagues in the sense of being able to go bigger? And Yeah, it does. It does. Absolutely. So if you look at the deals that I've done, uh, you know, that I've been part of, been lucky enough to be part of in the last couple of years, it's all about finding assets that the market sort of knows, but it doesn't really know, and finding assets that are a little under the radar and then working to get them into the light. Yeah. So Caliber is another good example. We bought the Nicaraguan assets from B2, and everybody had kind of forgotten about those because all the stuff that B2, the wonderful stuff that B2 has been doing in Africa, overshadowed all the assets in Nicaragua. And, you know, Sterling in Northern Empire was that. And so Moss is exactly that kind of an asset. Okay. Okay. At 30 to 40,000 ounces a year, it's under the radar. You know, a lot of investors are looking for 100,000 ounces plus. You know, so Moss is, is, is under the radar as a consequence of that. You know, so the guys at Northern Vertex did an extraordinary job in, in building the mine, getting it up and running, working their way through teething pains. And it's only just started to work. It's, you know, so I think the last quarter they did very well. And the mine is starting to make, you know, operating profits and it's, you know, starting to get steady state. Now, I want to bring this into the context of, well, actually the work that Dylan does with you, Dylan Burke. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, you say that the market for some of these assets just forgets about them, doesn't know about them, but you can bring that interest back into it. But it's actually, this is, I mean, this could be a whole interview in itself when you talk about capital markets and investor relations and really what you need and what you can do there. And to add another layer to that discussion, which I'd love to get your perspective on is the power of retail in building that foundation for, of an investor base to, to start attracting more institutional capital. Where can you go there? I mean, from experience and your perspectives on, on all of that, where, where do you want to take us with that? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? I mean, over the years, I've been asked to join boards of all sorts of different mining companies. You know, when I left uh, the brokerage business, I joined a few boards, kind of played around, sort of got to understand them a little better. But as I really started to understand the market and the interplay of capital markets, raising capital, the cost of capital, you know, is a really big one. You know, I would ask the question, if you raised a million dollars and you have a drill program, would you spend 900000 on drilling or would you take one hundred and fifty or 200000 and do some investor relations? And inevitably, they would say, oh, yeah, no, when we get good results, the market will, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and then I would follow up and say, okay, so you raised a million dollars. You talked to a whole bunch of investors. Have you talked to them since? Most yep. of them hadn't. You have a market with deaf ears who wouldn't even care. <laughs> Tree falls in the woods. Does, does anyone yep. hear it? Yep. That's exactly right. If you don't tell people, people won't know. And so that relates to the cost of capital. You know, so I've seen a lot of companies over the years will expand their market cap 
they will make a discovery, build a mine, and their market cap has ballooned, but the share price hasn't moved. And the reason is that they don't tell anybody. And then they get to a point where, oh, wow, we've got to raise $50 million to augment the operation. We have to raise $10 million to do a big drilling program. And inevitably, they raised some money the last time. They haven't talked to their investors since. And the only time that they talk to them again is when they need more money, which is the wrong time. Mm -hmm. So they would issue shares in the company faster than the value in the market increased. And so the share price didn't go anywhere. And if anything, it went down. And that speaks to the cost of capital. So if your investors don't make any money, then any subsequent capital that you raise gets more and more and more expensive. Now, here's one that I think a lot of people would say, there's no time or no money for that. Yeah. But you mentioned it and I thought it was interesting. Social yeah. media and digital marketing. Yeah. Oh, social media has been extraordinary. I mean, what an absolute wonderful, wonderful tool to use in this space. So if you look at, if you go back and look at Eclipse, the website that we had at Eclipse, you know, Dylan was so good in pulling together a whole bunch of content. And the content consisted of interviewing the key directors, what their philosophy, you know, very much like what we're doing right now. I mean, just having a discussion you know, speaking to the camera. So you end up speaking to your investors. And that was wonderful, wonderful content. So you got to, you got to meet me. You got to meet <laughs> Mike Allen. You got to meet uh, Marcel DeGroot, who was our director, uh, chairman. And there was that personal interplay that created a rapport with investors. So when we ended up merging with Vertex, a whole bunch of Vertex shareholders didn't know who we were. They went to the Eclipse website Oh, here's a video of Doug Hurst explaining who he is and, you know, what works. You know, so we've had feedback like, oh, we got a sense of who you were, what your philosophies are. And so they essentially got to meet me, which was extraordinarily powerful, right? That's awesome. It's a neat tool and we're in a neat world there. And I think a lot of people, both retail and institutional, they want to get behind the personalities, not they just do. the economics. They do. Yeah. Very cool. Doug, you know what? I This hour went quick. I want to respect your time here. So any final thoughts for the entrepreneurs and the executives in the markets in the mining space or any other company uh, or any other industry? Because you've definitely been through it. I love the stories of you know maxing out your credit cards to, to build your royalty <laughs> yeah. company as an example. So what final thoughts do you have for, for the audience? Well, I don't recommend running up your credit cards. <laughs> Probably not the best, but yeah. Oh my, no, no, no. But it, it was a frying pan. There's no doubt about that. It was a frying pan that, you know, Doug Silver and I were forged by that experience. There's no doubt about that. Well, you know what? I mean, you know, there are several very, very simple things to say, but very difficult to do. And, you know, we've talked about a few of them, things like go big or go home, you know? So, mm -hmm. so if you go bigger, there are more investors that are interested, you know, once a red flag, always a red flag. That's an Ian Telferism. Ian Telfer actually has a whole bunch of those uh, Ian Telferisms. And they're essentially sayings that are very easy to articulate, but they're very difficult to implement. You know, so going big is a really interesting one. You know, when you actually sit down and think about it, these kinds of things really make sense. And, and the big one that, you know, it's been a very simple business plan over the last 
you know, four or five companies that I've been involved in. And that is simply, you know, having enough capital to have infinite patience. Hmm. When you have infinite patience, you make great decisions Hmm. because you're not looking for your next paycheck. You're you're not worrying that you can't put food on the table. And all of a sudden, it means that you can make wonderful decisions. And when the deals come, then you're prepared and you're all ready to go. And when the deals come, they are typically deals that the market has forgotten about. And that's actually a really big one. You know, a big one is getting rid of the scar tissue that you've developed over the years around all sorts of issues, right? So as a really good example, you know, Crocodile Gold, the market had a ton of scar tissue about Crocodile Gold. And all the Australians thought Fosterville was done. It was this big underground, expensive underground mine. And so we looked at it and we went, okay, yeah, this is as advertised, but there's something else here. And we were able to push past our scar tissue and say, oh, okay, that's really interesting. And just for context there, that ended up being a billion-dollar sale? It did. It yeah. did. Yeah, with a B. That's that pretty magnificent. Lake and, and Kirkland Lake was trading at 6 or $7 at the time, and it went to 60 Wow. So it was amazing, yeah. What a career, Doug. And, and thank you so much for taking the time and sharing some of this experience here because I don't think we hear enough from people like yourself, so I really appreciate it. Well, you know what? Well, I'm so pleased you asked. So I have never actually done a podcast interview. So there we go. <laughs> nice, man. All right. All right. We'll ring the bell and we'll get this <laughs> out there. Thanks a lot for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.